0: From Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. As South African voters went to the polls this week, marking 25 years since the end of the racist apartheid system, we spend the hour with author and activist Professor Gerald Horn and his new book, White Supremacy Confronted. U.S. imperialism and anti-communism versus the liberation of Southern Africa from Rhodes to Mandela.
1: There was
2: a heightening of the terror of racism embodied in the term apartheid beginning in 1948. And this helps to remind us that apartheid itself was closer to slavery than it was to Jim Crow.
0: And as the world witnesses the United States violate one international law after the next, interfering with the sovereignty of nations around the globe, the breaking of apartheid looms large as an important victory over capitalist exploitation.
2: The Africans in southern Africa were not only fighting the Afrikaner ruling elite, they were confronting all of imperialism backed by U.S. imperialism.
0: More on Gerald Horn's new book and headlines from D.C. Next. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Averam. Our big headline from DC this week is the continued illegal attempt by the Trump administration to take over the Venezuela embassy here by ousting the peace activists who have been occupying the embassy in the Georgetown section of the district for a month at the invitation of the Venezuelan government. On Wednesday night, with the assistance of the U.S. Secret Service, D.C.'s controversial local electric utility, Pepco, which is owned by the nuclear giant Exelon, cut off electricity to the embassy, despite the fact that the electric bill has been paid and is current. On Thursday, a press conference was held by the activists that have formed the Embassy Protection Collective, made up of members of Code Pink, Popular Resistance, and the Answer Coalition. They call for the electricity to be turned back on and that food and medicines be allowed inside. As Brian Becker, national coordinator for the Answer Coalition, started the press conference, the pro-coup Venezuelan opposition started blaring sirens and banging pots and pans so that Becker and other peace activists could not be heard.
3: Is this the way it will be? Where the U.S. government, using utility companies, shut down the electricity of embassies? Can you imagine the cascading impact? Can other countries do this to U.S. embassies? Can they say, well, Nancy Pelosi is the president of the United States and we'll seize the U.S. embassy, or we'll shut off its electricity, or shut down the water? I mean, this is lawlessness. The Vienna Convention is designed to protect all countries, all governments, and all diplomats And the Bush administration, acting on behalf of the most aggressive elements like John Bolton and Mike Pompeo, is engaged in crazy.
0: In an effort to be heard, Code Pink's Medea Benjamin walked about a block away from the embassy and into a coffee shop where she was able to address news organizations.
1: And it's, I think, a a reflection, uh, and a very sad one, on the people who are outside that say they want to improve the lives of people in Venezuela. They want them to have electricity. They want them to have food and water. But they want to turn off uh, the electricity. They want the people inside here to have uh, no food. And they were cheering last night as the electricity were turned off, as if that were a great victory for them.
0: Since May 1st, the Venezuela Embassy building with the activists inside has been besieged by a violent mob made up of Venezuela's opposition, which has prevented food, medicine, and supplies from entering with support from the U.S. Secret Service. The violent opposition has also made racial slurs, misogynistic threats, and threats of violence against the activists and the Secret Service and D.C. police are refusing to make arrests or ensure safety when the peaceful activists outside the building are verbally or physically assaulted by Guaido supporters or when they try to deliver food to those inside. The police have also assaulted peace activists. Earlier this week, three people were arrested, and one, Jerry Condon, board president of Veterans for Peace, who is in his 70s, was hospitalized with his face bloodied after being tackled to the ground by Secret Service agents after he attempted to throw a cucumber through a window at the embassy to get food to those inside. In another affront to those in our hemisphere, President Donald Trump spent the opening minutes of a campaign rally in Florida on Wednesday, attacking hurricane-ravaged Puerto Rico and grossly overstating how much aid the island has received. Trump held up a small bar graph and said erroneously and mockingly that Puerto Rico had received $91 billion in hurricane relief funding. It's the most money we've ever given to any, anybody. We've never given $91 billion to a
1: state. We've never given. We gave to Puerto Rico $91 billion. And I'll tell you, the services, you look at the Marines, you look at the Navy, the job they did there was really... Incredible. Incredible.
0: Contrary to Trump's statements, the Associated Press reports that only about $11 billion has been given to Puerto Rico, not $91 billion. Experts estimate that more than 4,000 people in Puerto Rico died in the wake of Hurricane Maria in 2017. In other climate news, more than 200 national groups demanded on Thursday that the Senate stop the passage of a bill that would keep both Europe and the United States dependent on fossil fuels. Passed by the House in March, the European Energy Security and Diversification Act of 2019 would provide billions of dollars in support for natural gas infrastructure projects, propping up fossil fuel industries and fracking projects in the U.S. in an effort to dissuade European countries from buying gas from Russia. The legislation would lock both the United States and Europe into decades of continued fossil fuel dependence under the guise of national security, said Food and Water Watch, which organized the letter signed by groups including the Sunrise Movement, 350.org, Greenpeace, Oil Change U.S., and Friends of the Earth. The legislation is now under consideration in the Senate, with Senator Chris Murphy, Democrat of Connecticut, sponsoring the bill, along with five bipartisan co-sponsors. And finally, in culture and media, the Trump administration instituted new rules on Thursday for credentials for White House reporters. Journalists say that the new rules will result in a purge of those allowed to cover the executive branch, with changes from Press Secretary With these changes from Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders, journalists will be required to work at the White House for 90 out of 180 days in order to hold what are called hard passes, which allow easy access to the building for reporters who regularly cover the administration. But the new guidelines don't consider that reporters are sometimes out on weekends, on campaign trail reporting, or on presidential trips. Meanwhile, the White House Correspondents Association, which claims to ensure robust coverage of the presidency, released no immediate statement denouncing the curtailing of the free press. That silence is in contrast to the swift condemnation condemnation of comedian Michelle Wolf last year when she delivered a blistering critique of Trump, other administration officials, including Huckabee Sanders, and corporate media. And finally, the D.C. Funk Parade is happening Saturday, May 11th, with a day-long festival along the district's U Street Corridor and will also include a conference and a night music festival with discussion and performances at more than 25 different venues. More information is at funkparade.com. And those are headlines and happenings. When we come back, White Supremacy Confronted, U.S. Imperialism and Anti-Communism Versus the Liberation of Southern Africa. From Rhodes to Mandela, stay with us.
3: To dance our way Out of our constriction Call the be freaking Up and down The hang-up alleyway With the groove I only got We shall all be moved Ready or not, here. Yeah.
0: This is On the Ground, ground OnTheGroundShow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. For this segment, I'm joined by our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn, and we're going to talk about his new book, White Supremacy Confronted, U.S. Imperialism and Anti-Communism Versus the Liberation of Southern Africa, From Rose to Mandela. Thank you for joining me today, Gerald. Thank you for inviting me. So, as we consider the world today, I mean, so many of the issues that we're covering even on this show, some people are calling this the last desperate gasp of white supremacy, settler colonialism, and U.S. imperialism in places like Venezuela, Cuba, and Iran. And during all this, it seems to me that the struggle to defeat apartheid in South Africa looms larger in historical importance. And so I'm wondering, as an historian, as the author of this tremendous new book and analysis, if that is how you see the real story of South Africa.
2: Well, yes, I do think that this book is an addition to the growing literature on what I would like to say is the retreat of white supremacy. Uh, That is to say, retreating, if you look at it in the long sweep of history, uh, from the commencement of the African slave trade to the abolition of slavery, to the onset of Jim Crow, and then, of course, uh, to integrate that with the history of Southern Africa uh, from the onset of settler colonialism of Southern Africa, which, by the way, it begins in South Africa in 1652, which is the same time that it takes off in North America. We also know that there was slavery in South Africa, not only involving Africans from neighboring Mozambique, but also people from what is now Indonesia uh, coming to what is now Cape Town. And, of course, we all know about the eerie parallels between South African apartheid and U.S. Jim Crow. Uh, What I try to show in this book is how United States leaders sought to learn from the experience of racism in South Africa and Southern Africa generally, and vice versa. Uh, That is to say that those who mastered slavery and racism in Southern Africa uh, took lessons from their counterparts in North America as well. And it's no accident that as slavery and Jim Crow begin to retreat in North America, you also see those counterpart institutions in Southern Africa begin to retreat as well. Not least because as black people in North America began to gain more rights, they could then pressure the United States government to retreat from its theretofore close relationship with Pretoria. And that was a signal factor leading to the first democratic elections In South Africa, 25 years ago, of course, they just repeated that exercise this week with the apparent victory of the African National Congress in this week's elections in South Africa. And, of course, the book also deals with the retreat of settler colonialism in what used to be called Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe, what used to be called Southwest Africa, now Namibia, and of course the retreat of colonialism uh, in Angola and Mozambique, former Portuguese territories. And I must say as well that in this book, I also try to integrate somewhat the history of the Congo, uh, not only uh, Cong- what used to be called Congo Brazzaville, the Republic of the Congo, but also the DRC, the, the larger neighbor the Democratic Republic of the Congo, Congo Kinshasa. And so it's a sprawling text, I'm afraid to say, it's 900 pages. But I have to say also that I wrote it really for the audience in Southern Africa. And actually I'll be traveling to Southern Africa within a few months on a sort of book tour of Southern Africa, which uh, I'm afraid to say will not take place in North America.
0: Well, well, you'll certainly be with us on May 19th when we have our five-year celebration for On the Ground, but we'll deal with that later, you know, but we want to let people know that you will be touring here. Anyway, so, you know, in your book, you know, I was really struck by the analysis of more than one person that the history of South Africa and its freedom is not just about South Africa, that it's also about the history of decolonization movements in surrounding Southern Africa and other decolonization movements in general in Africa and elsewhere. So, you know, because we're almost set up here in the U S with poor information and poor education, very often, you know, we don't make those kinds of connections. So, so why don't you give us a, a sense of, of the ways that South Africa's freedom was connected to the freedom of, of other people in the, in that region and in the world.
2: Well, take Namibia, for example, the Northern neighbor of South Africa. Recall that, formerly referred to as German Southwest Africa, uh, Namibia endured some of the most brutal colonialism, and in fact genocide, that any people on planet Earth have endured. Uh, Recall that between 1904 and 1908, there was a genocide perpetrated by the German colonizers uh, that in many ways anticipated what the German Nazis did in Central and Eastern Europe in the 1930s and 1940s, and in fact, because there was so little attention to what happened to the Herero and Nama people of what is now Namibia, it seems to me that it lubricated the path for what was to befall Central and Eastern Europe in the 1930s and 1940s. And then, as you know, Germany was defeated during World War I, 1914 to 1918, and as part of the settlement... South Africa moved in to occupy Namibia. So the people of Namibia endured two of the most brutal and heinous forms of colonialism that any people on Earth have had to endure, that of the Germans and that of the so-called Afrikaners in Pretoria. Unsurprisingly, there was a close relationship between the freedom fighters in Namibia and the freedom fighters in South Africa. Uh, It's no accident that Namibia comes to independence in 1990 and South Africa follows a few years later in 1994. Dimbo Toivo Jatoivo, who I talk about quite a bit in the book, a founding father of Namibia uh, now who has joined the ancestors. He really came to political maturity uh, through his work and labor in South Africa, particularly Cape Town, and like many in that part of the world, he was deeply influenced by the South African Communist Party. In fact, uh, I join other historians in pointing out that Nelson Mandela was likely a member of the Central Committee of the South African Communist Party for a good deal of his adult life. Uh, That revelation is not unique to me, other historians have put that forward. So there was a very close relationship between the strugglers in Namibia and the strugglers of South Africa, not least because Namibia itself had been colonized by South Africa. And likewise, there was a close relationship between the strugglers in Mozambique to the northeast of South Africa and the strugglers in South Africa itself. Uh, You may know that the Third wife, if you like, of Nelson Mandela, Grasha Michelle, of course, is Mozambican. Uh, she's still in the land of the living and, of course, was the widow of the founding father of Mozambique, uh, Samora Michelle. Mozambique comes to independence in 1975 and then sort of established itself as sort of a base uh, for uh, operations by militants of the African National Congress from that point forward. Until in the mid to late 1980s, when the South African apartheid authorities most likely helped to engineer the assassination of Samor Michel by making sure his plane would crash into a mountain, uh, killing Samor Michel, his top aides, the pilot, etc. And then you had the notorious Nkamadi Accord just before that, where uh, Samor Michel and the freedom fighters in Mozambique and Frey Limo. Uh, felt compelled to expel uh, ANC militants because they were under such pressure uh, from the apartheid authorities. Uh, I should also say that it's no accident that uh, Mozambique comes to independence in 1975, and shortly thereafter, you see the coming to independence of Angola. And Ang- Angola is a real turning point, uh, I would say, not only in terms of the history of Southern Africa, but I would say in the history of the Pan-African world, because recall that it was in April 1974 that you had the overthrow fascism in Portugal, and that created fertile conditions for the coming independence of both Mozambique and Angola. But what happens in Angola, Southwest Africa, which, by the way, uh, produced a disproportionate number of enslaved Africans in North America. It's no accident that one of the chief prisons that incarcerates African-Americans in the United States is called Angola State Prison in Louisiana. In any case, with Angola, there was factionalism. There was a struggle between the ultimately triumphant party, the MPLA, which is still ruling in Luanda, Angola. But there were other factions, such as UNITA, Uh, led by Jonas Avimbe, and this was not the finest hour for some of our black nationalist friends in the United States of America who sided with apartheid South Africa and U.S. imperialism and, I might say, Maoist China in terms of supporting UNITA. Uh, And, of course, MPLA was backed by a broad swath of the international left led by the Cubans, And, of course, backed up by the then Soviet Union. And it was the Cuban intervention in Angola in late 1975 that turned the tide, not only leading to the liberation of Angola, but also created conditions for the liberation, I would say, of Zimbabwe due east uh, by 1980. And then that set the stage for the liberation of uh, South Africa itself.
0: And on that note, I want us to take a, a brief break. Uh, I do want to get into that history that you alluded to, not only in terms of the position of some African-Americans, but also the role of Cuba. I just got back from Cuba and I actually have a little to to share in terms of some of what I did there and, and some of the people who I spoke to. So we'll be right back. is On the Ground, thegroundshow.org Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum, and I'm in conversation with Professor Gerald Horn, our geopolitical analyst, about his new book, White Supremacy Confronted, U.S. Imperialism and Anti-Communism versus the Liberation of Southern Africa from Rhodes to Mandela. And before the break, you were just getting into some subjects I wanted to save for this segment. First of all, the tremendous Role that Cuba played. I just got back from Cuba, and uh, I had a chance to, you know, talk to people and just learn a lot about their role and also the position of some African Americans during the Southern African struggles. But anyway. When I was there, uh, South South Africans were among the participants in the international brigade that I was a part of for May Day, and they were among those giving testimony to the fact that if Fidel Castro hadn't had not dispatched some three hundred thousand troops to fight alongside liberation movements in Angola and Namibia, that South Africa would. Still be an apartheid nation. so I want to play a clip from Gerardo Gonzalez, a Cuban veteran from the wars in Southern Africa and he lives in Santo Spiritus and he's head of the Committee for the Defense of the Revolution in his region: well, What would he like to tell Americans about his service in
1: Angola?. <laughs> had the chance to do something for the good of others. And at that time, we did not care about giving our life if we were helping others. And I think that if I had to do it again, I would.
0: So that was Gerardo Gonzalez, a Cuban veteran from the wars in Southern Africa. And so what's your take on this statement? I heard so much in Cuba that if Fidel Castro had not sent troops to Southern Africa, that uh, South Africa might still be an apartheid state.
2: Well, I think there's something to that, undoubtedly. Recall as well that U.S. imperialism was so upset in fact traumatized, I think it was Henry Kissinger who used that verb to describe the reaction in Washington to the audacity of this small island 90 miles from South Florida to send tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of troops to Southern Africa to defeat the apartheid army on the battlefield that's then backed up by U.S. imperialism itself, backed up by the Central Intelligence Agency as uh, scandals eventually helped to reveal. Indeed, Washington was so traumatized by Cuba's audacity that it moved aggressively to try to dismantle the entire socialist camp, uh, which, of course, begins to occur in 1989 and then accelerates in 1991 with the collapse of the Soviet Union. And so, This Cuban intervention was critically important, and in fact, if you're trying to figure out and trying to understand some of the problems in Southern Africa today, you have to understand that capsule history I just enunciated. That is to say that the Africans in Southern Africa were not only fighting the Africana-ruling elite with their British allies in Durban— uh, they were confronting all of imperialism backed by U.S. imperialism. And I'm afraid to say that on this side of the Atlantic, we were not altogether able to bring U.S. imperialism to heel. Now, certainly there was a vibrant anti-apartheid movement. and I spend scores of pages, hundreds of pages going into that. Washington, D.C. plays a critical role. Some in your audience might recall the late Damu Smith, for example, in the Washington office on Africa, recalled the Free South Africa movement and the demonstrations of the South African embassy. But at the same time, uh, we would be delinquent and remiss if we failed to acknowledge, for example, that in the 1950s, the NAACP leadership was trying to flip leaders of the African National Congress on an anti-communist basis, trying to hooked them up with the CIA, in fact, and this includes not only Walter White, the then leader of the NAACP, but his comrade, Ralph Bunch, a Nobel laureate, uh, who of course was a top leader at the United Nations, a former professor at Howard University, too, by the way. And so it's very ironic that when Nelson Mandela is freed in February 1990, and he receives this raucous welcome in North America. He's lionized by some who had turned their back against the ANC because they saw the ANC as a a communist front. They saw it as being all too close to the Cuban Communist Party and the Communist Party in Moscow. And yet that was all forgotten uh, as he was greeted by tens of thousands. I recall I was at the LA Coliseum uh, when he visited there. It was about 90,000 people there to greet him, that was replicated all all across the United States and Detroit and Oakland.
0: Oh, yeah, I was in New York and the, I think, Yankee Stadium. It was was
2: Yankee Stadium, absolutely.
0: Yeah, Yeah, it was filled up and um, way over the top.
2: (laughs) But this history that I'm recalling and this text uh, somehow has been forgotten uh, for various reasons. The uh, liberation of South Africa is seen as a feather in the cap. Of black America, when actually the Black America, not only the Black America, but I would say the U.S. left in general, was not as heroic as they might pretend to depict today.
0: Yeah, well, I was really struck by uh, a passage in the book, and it talked about this particular situation here in in the United States. The uh, you write that prominent African Americans. And I think that means, for example, Charles Evers, brother of the martyred Medgar, Ralph Abernathy, Martin Luther King's closest colleague, Dick Gregory, performer and activist, and Jose Williams, yet another King colleague, were listed as supporters of the MPLA's fiercest opponents, UNITA, the National Union for the Total Independence of Angola, which in turn was backed by the U.S. ultra-right. It was in 1987 that Reagan aide Herman Cohen sought to mobilize African-American leaders on UNITA's behalf. The group's leader, Jonas Savimbi, was highly thought of by centrist black political personalities. And in that whole section, I, you know, I really learned a lot about the whole juxtaposition of black nationalism and those kind of advocating for more of a race based uh, position towards South Africa as opposed to one that was more socialist based. And so that really brought that history back to me. And it helped me to understand why not all South Africans today will necessarily consider African Americans comrades. They may want to understand where you're coming from and, and basically what you think. They're not going to just, uh, assume just because you have black skin that you are, you're know, on the right side of history.
2: Well, I think it's part of this unfortunate history in North America, where you had the settler's revolt that set up a slaveholder's republic that then helped to establish a fair amount of class collaboration, I should say, amongst Euro-Americans of different socioeconomic backgrounds. You saw that most dramatically during the November 2016 election with 63 million, mostly Euro-Americans, voted for Donald J. Trump, and his support has hardly cracked since then. And what that points up is that this has led many uh, Afro-Americans to suspect that all of European descent are as backward as these so-called white Americans in the United States of America. And so the race analysis will take you a long way in the United States of America, given the fact that, you know, 1991, I think I mentioned this in the book, David Duke, a Nazi, received a majority of the Euro-American vote in the state of Louisiana. (laughs) <laughs> Only a massive turnout by black voters prevented a Nazi from being governor of Louisiana. However, that sort of analysis doesn't travel very well once it leaves these shores. And certainly it didn't travel very well in Angola. Uh, many uh, black Americans, they supported UNITA because uh, Jonas Savimbi, the leader of UNITA, who, as you correctly say, was backed by the ultra-right, was one of uh, Ronald Reagan's favorite Africans, uh, he, he claimed, and this claim had a lot of resonance uh, in black America, that uh, MPLA they were just being manipulated by communists, and that some had the temerity to be married to European women, Portuguese women, and this was seen as sufficient to discredit them uh, in the eyes of uh, many black Americans. In fact, Paul Manafort, uh, the Trump uh, campaign chair, uh, now sitting in jail. Maybe he's listening to this interview. Uh, perhaps he might learn something. He, of course, was one of uh, Jonas Avembi's uh, closest comrades when Jonas Avembi uh, toured the United States in, in 1987, uh, joining uh, uh, this sort of motley crew that included uh, Dick Gregory, Osea Williams, Ralph Abernathy, uh, Charles Evers, etc., and uh, I'm afraid to say that in the District of Columbia, uh, Mr. Zavimbi uh, had a fair amount of support. Now, I don't want to overstate the case. Uh, I prefer to talk about in the District of Columbia, the Free South Africa Movement, the a- activism of people like the late Damu Smith, for example. Uh, some in the audience might re- recall Dumi Matabani, uh, for example, who was the ANC representative uh, in the district uh, in the United States, uh, of course, based in the district. Ooh, a very progressive uh, comrade uh, who influenced quite a number of Afro-Americans. But I think it, it, one, one of the reasons uh, I went on to some, some length in this book, you know, 900 pages, is so I could paint the whole picture. Uh, so I would not uh, be forced to delete or edit out uh, either savory or unsavory parts of our history.
0: And that's why we're here to talk about the real history, the whole history and nothing but the history. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam and I'm in conversation with Professor Gerald Horn, our geopolitical analyst, about his new book, White Supremacy Confronted, U.S. Imperialism and Anti-Communism versus the Liberation of Southern Africa from Rhodes to Mandela. Stay with us. This is On the Ground, on org Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Avera, and I'm in conversation this week with Professor Gerald Horn about his new book, White Supremacy Confronted U.S. Imperialism and Anti Communism versus the Liberation of Southern Africa, from Rhodes to Mandela. And, Gerald, this new book reminds me of how apartheid South Africa was almost like a well-kept secret of profit and exploitation in the U.S. You know, it was for for many of us coming of age around the time of the apartheid struggle, it was the first recognition of the links between racism and capitalism. So I'm going to read this little blurb from the book. It says, in 1963, as Jim Crow was a in a defensive crouch and apartheid was headed in that direction, the White House contemplated a confidential report that detailed that, quote, direct U.S. investment in South Africa at the end of 1962 was $363 million. And that's a lot more money in today's dollars right while if private bank deposit portfolio investments etc are added total US private investment is currently on the order of 600 million dollars returns were described as high at about 16% per year in the mining industry and from 12 to 20% in the manufacturing and commercial fields more than 150 firms have holdings in South Africa it was said 12 are in the automotive field 12 in drug and cosmetics, 12 in electrical equipment and appliance trade, and 10 in food processing. The giants there included General Motors, Ford, Studebaker, Chrysler, Firestone, Goodyear, General Electric, Westinghouse, Procter & Gamble, Kellogg, and the list went on and on. I think also what we know as the Corporation Esso was there. So there are a number of corporations there. So I just think that when it comes to the uh, struggle against apartheid here, a lot of it was I guess thwarted by the sheer ignorance of apartheid by Americans. I know I remember distinctly when I learned about apartheid. I was in junior high school, I think, and or the end of end of I don't know, end of elementary school or something there was a, a, a SEPTA strike, a public transportation strike in Philadelphia. So that SEPTA there, the um the public transportation system there and we had a substitute history teacher and I guess he didn't know that he was supposed to like tell us about apartheid <laughs> But he told us about apartheid and all of us were like really upset, you know, so upset that, you know, it was really good that we had, we were able to like walk off our steam rather than get on the bus or the trolley. <laughs> and we had to walk that day. So I, I remember thinking like, how could something like this exist? You know, this is in, I guess, in the seventies or something. And we're like wondering like how could how could something like this exist and here we're here you know talking about the tail end of i guess the black power movement or the black consciousness movement so how much did ignorance play a part in terms of just you know americans not being involved in the apartheid struggle well you know i talk about that
2: in the book Mm -hmm. the general ignorance of africa in the united states of america which is quite ironic indeed given all these Africans walking the streets of North America, including the nation's capital. And yet there's an abysmal ignorance of the continent itself, which then in turn helps to lubricate the path for monopoly capitalism in their profiteering, those corporations that you just mentioned, which reminds us that apartheid itself, which in some sense could be called the highest stage of white supremacy – was only inaugurated in 1948, although it's fair to suggest that racism of the most heinous character existed in South Africa since 1652. But there was a heightening of the terror of racism embodied in the term apartheid beginning in 1948. And this helps to remind us that apartheid itself was closer to slavery than it was to Jim Crow, to put it in North American terms. And because you had these U.S. corporations that were profiting so handsomely from the cheap labor of Africans in particular, it made it very difficult to change U.S. policy towards apartheid or towards the whole Southern Africa region, uh, because we know that In Angola, for example, uh, there was oil that was being extracted. There are diamonds in Angola as well, diamonds in neighboring Namibia, uranium in Namibia. The uranium that was used to build the atomic bomb that leveled Hiroshima and Nagasaki uh, came straight out of the Congo, uh, for example. Uh, On these airwaves, more than once, we've talked about the Coltan that comes out of Congo, which is essential for your smartphones, as we speak, uh, Anadarko, which is a major U.S.-based oil company, is profiting handsomely from extracting oil from Mozambique. Uh, This is after U.S. imperialism battered uh, Mozambique uh, from pillar to post, collaborating with apartheid South Africa to destabilize uh, that country, to fund... A terrorist, the so called Mozambique National Resistance, which, by the way, is still in existence, and whose specialty was slicing off the noses and lips of Africans, because their theory of the case was that the government in Mozambique would have to spend more to attend to the medical needs of those who were disfigured than if they were killed. And So it was sort of a, a, a rational analysis of terror, for example. So this is what we had to deal with. This is what we had to confront with confronting this monster uh, in Southern Africa, this monster not only of apartheid and settler colonialism, but this monster of U.S. imperialism as well.
0: We're going to run out of time for this week. I realize that we need to do this in two parts, and and hopefully you'll be able to rejoin me next week. There's so much in the book that I think that for our monthly segment, The F Word, we have a treasure trove of material in your book to cover for our monthly discussion on fascism and South Africa's uh, connection to Nazis in Germany. But to finish up today, I wanted you to talk a little bit about how nervous the United States government was that the uh, movement against Jim Crow in the United States would be considered almost in the same vein as apartheid in South Africa. And really how much they worked against internationalization of the struggle of African-Americans, fearing that it would be put alongside apartheid as an evil.
2: Well, that's a major theme of this book. I mean, there's so much to talk about. I'm not even sure where to begin. But let's start with Paul Robeson, who you may recall, started the Council on African Affairs, uh, one of the most important of the anti-colonial movements in this country. He started that in 1937. It was driven out of existence by the U.S. government in 1956, not least because Robeson was trying to internationalize the African-American struggle. That was the import of the We Charge Genocide petition that he filed in conjunction with the fellow left-wing organization, the Civil Rights Congress under the leadership of the black lawyer William Patterson, filed in 1950 at the United Nations charging the United States with genocide against the black population of the United States. And even if you fast forward to the LBJ administration in Washington from 1963 to 1968, there was grave apprehension and fear that Martin Luther King Jr. would seek to raise the question of U.S. Jim Crow at the United Nations and link up that struggle against Jim Crow with the companion struggle against apartheid. And indeed, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. was a signal figure Uh, when one begins to write the history of anti-apartheid in this country. He went to London and spoke on behalf of the uh, African National Congress, for example, He was not deterred, as some were, I'm afraid to say, by this idea that the African National Congress was in a close and tight alliance with the South African Communist Party, which in fact it was. He was not deterred by that. And uh, I think Martin Luther King, in, in my book at least, that we're talking about today, comes off very well in terms of being able to stand tall against U.S. imperialism and against anti-communism, which I'm afraid to say you can't say for some of our other leaders.
0: All right. Well, this is certainly a deep and wide ranging read, this new book. From Professor Gerald Horne, confronting white supremacy, U.S. imperialism, and anti-communism versus the liberation of Southern Africa from Rhodes to Mandela. I think it just says so much, not only about history, but about our living history, what's happening today. The struggles that we're reporting on today, as I mentioned before, from Venezuela to Cuba to Iran, just the reach and the attitude and posture and arrogance of U.S. imperialism and white supremacy that we are witnessing today. So anyway, I want to thank our geopolitical analyst, as always, Professor Gerald Horn. Thank you so much for joining me today, Gerald, and I look forward to continuing our discussion next week.
2: Thank you for inviting me.
0: And that will do it for today's show. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org. voices of resistance from the nation's capital on Pacifica Radio. Special thanks to Professor Gerald Horn for today's interview. The music we played this hour included One Nation Under a Groove by Funkadelic and Kosi Sikelele Africa, featuring Sulama Mafangwane and Handsworth Revolution by Steel Pulse. You can contact us, support us, and partner with us and listen to all of our current and past shows on the website we maintain, onthegroundshow.org. If you like the show, let us know by liking us on Facebook or Twitter under On The Ground Show, and we are on iTunes and Google Play under the title WPFW On The Ground. And better yet, please, please support On the Ground by helping us celebrate our 5th anniversary, May 19th, 5 p.m. at the new Busboys and Poets Anacostia with Professor Gerald Horn signing his new books on South Africa and on jazz. And Chantel James, Lydia Curtis, Michelle Roberts, DJ Floyd Wahid, Aaron on the Wheels of Steel. And more information and tickets are on... Our website on thegroundshow.org on Facebook and on Eventbrite. If you can't come, you can donate a ticket to someone else. You can also subscribe to our Patreon page, and we have a whole range of ways that you can support On the Ground on the website on thegroundshow.org. I'm Esther Averum Until next time, keep raising your voice. Peace.